Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Boys and girls, here we are one more time with Beaches Motorcycle Adventures, Mike from Thunder Bay, Ontario. <laughs> hey, how's it going today, Rob? Good, good, good. And Rob Beach here from Grand Island, New York, and our audio adventures since we're sitting here in quarantine and not riding motorcycles. <laughs> so I was trying to think of, usually I bring a beer to these meetings, but didn't really have any American beer. I just had some other stuff. So I poured myself uh, a bourbon and Pepsi. I thought that was very American-ish, just since it seems like the subject of our podcast today is going to be more about beaches, motorcycle adventures. And and what is it? It's like your 48th year running uh, this year, if, if, in, if you do uh, get to run. <laughs> yes, exactly. Our 48th year, and everything is kind of ground to a halt at the moment. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. So, 48 years—that's that's that's a long time. Uh, does that make you the oldest oldest company? I believe it does indeed. Make us the oldest motorcycle tour company in the world. Wow, well, that's uh, something to hang your hat on. There's been up times and down times like any other business. So to be to be able to do that continuously in an industry like this. Uh, must be a tough thing. Yes, it can be. <laughs> it can be. 2008 hit us pretty hard. Other times, the gas crisis in 1975 made an impact. And uh, yeah, it's a business that has its ups and downs for sure. But it's a great way to meet lots of really amusing people and travel to some stunning places. So how did all this start? How did, how did the whole Beaches Motorcycle Adventures get going? Was your father, Bob, was it not? It was. Way back when, Bob Beach was an amusement ride salesman. He was actually the corporate pilot and main salesman for the East Coast for Alan Herschel. Alan Herschel was the manufacturer of reasonably significant theme park rides and also Kittyland Land rides, portable rides. The ones that you may be familiar with are the Wild Mouse and the big double Ferris wheel, the Dodgems, and... Also, carousels. They were one of the most prolific American carousel manufacturers. And Dad worked for them for quite a long time as a corporate pilot for the boss and main salesman for the East Coast. So I grew up in and out of amusement parks when I was a kid. And then the company had some legal issues um, after some people were injured in accidents with some of their rides. And they ended up going out of business and selling to a company in Wichita, Kansas, Chance Manufacturing. And dad didn't really want to move to Wichita. So he was sitting back as an unemployed merry-go-round salesman, scratching his head, trying to figure out what to do. What do I do with this skill set? <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
he discovered that at that point in time, you could go to Europe and take a tour and buy a new BMW and bring that bike back with you. Because that was because uh, there was import duties or something on the, on the bikes. Was that why that was kind of why it was worthwhile? It was worthwhile because the American dollar was so strong. That was back in the days of Deutschmark, and it was four to one exchange on the dollar to the Deutschmark. Basically, the tour at that point was something to, like $2,580. That included your airfare over and back and a new BMW motorcycle that you brought home and the airfare for that. Hmm. This was not a new idea for dad. It was a tour that was being conducted by a fellow named Edison Dye. And Edison Dye is also known in America as the man who brought over uh, Roger DeCoster and Pierre Carsmakers and a few other European motocross riders and introduced motocross racing to America. He had his fingers in a lot of different things and he didn't have enough of his attention on the tours and the tour was run very poorly. That actually would be an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was it was uh, a number of fiascos, one cascading right after the other. And so it wasn't but a couple of days into the tour that Dad was absolutely fascinated with Europe. He had not planned on going more than once. He was going to get a, a new BMW motorcycle. And mind you, at that point, that $3,000 or $4,000 was uh, half of his income for a year. Wow. When he was, you know, I mean, it was, he was unemployed. <laughs> so, so, so he's originally going, he's to go on the trip. He's not going to think this is a new business opportunity. Exactly. Exactly. And in fact, on his passport application, one of the questions was, will you be visiting Europe again in the future? And he wrote no in great big letters because he was not interested. When he saw this deal and, and discovered that it was possible, he went and asked mom if she wanted to go to Europe. And she said, oh yes, absolutely. And he said, on the seat of a motorcycle? And she said, uh, yes, knowing that that was probably the only way that she was going to get over there. And she was not a regular passenger on a bike at that point at all. So off they went to Europe and the tour, as I said, didn't go quite as they had planned. They all arrived at the airport together on one flight and stood around and no one came and no one came and no one came. And finally, someone dug up a telephone number and as dad tells the tale, he called. And on the other end was this lovely little voice. Oh, oh my, you're here already? And so she showed up in a Volkswagen van and looked at 35 people and all of their luggage and had a, a four-cylinder Volkswagen van to pick them up. And she said, oh, you won't all fit, will you? <laughs> and it took about, um, I don't know, 10 trips back and forth between the airport and the hotel to get everyone there. But by midnight, they were all in and it was all okay because tomorrow they were going to go pick up their brand new BMWs and see the factory and it was going to be just great. Except tomorrow turned out to be a holiday. It hadn't been factored into anything at all. So they couldn't go pick up the motorcycles. And in fact, now the entire tour is screwed up by a day. Because Germans take their holidays quite seriously. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do. So, and that was the beginning of the tour. Turned out that the woman that was actually conducting it had never been to any of the places, nor she had she actually ever run a tour anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Our very first tour with you, it's funny, uh, Bonnie and I, uh, we land in, in Munich airport, and I know about five words of German, and we wait, and we wait, and wait. <laughs> 
<laughs> nobody showed up. We finally met up. Our plane got in a little bit early, but it's, that's that's kind of funny. Um, so our experience somewhat like your father's. <laughs> <laughs> so, as Dad is uh, discovering Europe and seeing all of this unfold, he said, "I to Elizabeth, his wife, I don't know anything at all about Europe, and I don't know anything about the travel business, but I can organize." conduct a better tour than this and that was the uh the seed that got them going and the rest is now 48 years of history huh. they actually had big presentation at glen helen raceway for edison die and he was there he they, they pulled him out of a nursing home and took him out there in a wheelchair and uh had a whole bunch of the old motocross guys who got, all got together because he, he was pretty well forgotten he was a bit of a promoter and he was uh, according to dad when he was in Europe, he was actually running cash back and forth, and and which was quite illegal. But he was speculating on on the exchange markets and traveling around with a trunk full of cash in his Mercedes, changing lira from Deutschmark for this, for that, for the French franc, etc., from one border to the next. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, yep. At that point, Dad decided that uh, he could organize a better tour, and he spent three years researching everything and starting to put it together and conducted his first tour in 1972, which coincidentally was the last year that Edison Dye ever conducted a tour. So Dye was out of the business in 72 when we started and we've been doing it ever since. And so what, how, when did your mother get involved? Was that right away or? Pretty much. She was an executive at the local council for the Girl Scouts uh, and uh, she had a full-time job there and was involved with a variety of other clubs and other things. But she was certainly a very serious helping hand, very organized and very capable laying the groundwork of the company. She was she was quite involved. But then as things took off and got busier and busier, she stopped working for the Girl Scouts and was working here full time. So then at some point you, you jump in and you're helping out with the company. How did you start getting into it? We actually had a couple of things going on. In addition to the tours, we were the importer for Krauser accessories, Krauser motorcycle accessories. Mike Krauser was a BMW dealer in Munich, outside of Munich, and he developed the very first quick detachable modular, if you will, luggage for motorcycles. We were the American, North American importers for that for 10 or 12 years. And I was actually here working as a warehouse manager, or I, basically I was doing everything for that business. While dad was off playing in Europe, I was here with container loads full of saddlebags and shipping them out to BMW and other dealers around the country. So that was how I got involved initially. So at what point are you headed over to Europe and joining in some of the fun? The first time I went to Europe, I was 13 years old and it was, I think, the second tour. This is way before any of the Krauser stuff. I think it was the second tour that mom and dad actually conducted. And they were so enamored with Europe that they wanted to get the entire family over and so they trotted me out and uh, I went to Europe. I really didn't want to go to Europe. I had a very nice Hodaka Super Rat here and uh, could see no redeeming value to going away from my motorcycle for a couple of weeks, especially while my parents were going to be out of the country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see that as a young person, mom, dad leaving town, why would I follow them exactly? <laughs> exactly, so no, I was not very happy to be there. And I don't particularly remember the trip. The first tour that I actually remember well 
was the next time I went when I was 17 years old and I was riding my own bike. That trip I remember very well. I'll bet. I'll bet. 17 and on a motorcycle tour, it's certainly a thing of dreams for many people. Although I don't know about that when we're 17, certainly when we're in our 20s, maybe uh, for a lot of us. Often when we're that young, (laughs) we don't know yet what we want or like probably more like, uh, like you said, stay at home, get your motorcycle and you want to go visit the the hot girl down the street. Yep, very definitely. But at that point, I could get a grip on exactly what it was that dad found so fascinating about it. I was hooked at that point. It was, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life if I can. So let's, uh, I, you've talked about it before, the logistics of running a tour uh, now compared to then. Uh, we're, we're so used to this day and age of our smartphones and computers and everything. But even, I think often... People forget, even just to make a long-distance phone call back then would have been a substantial amount of money, I guess, and, and just finding a phone number for a hotel. So logistically, back when you were starting, it must have been quite the, the process. Oh, indeed. Things were really and truly different. If we were changing the itinerary at all, we would research the town that we were going to, get a list of hotels, normally through the tourist bureau, because there weren't a plethora of travel books at that point either. So we get a list of hotels and now we have to write to the hotels and say, would you please send us information on your hotel and do you have space available on this particular date or days for a group of X number of people? And we would put that in the mail. And it took three weeks for it to reach the other side of the Atlantic and end up on the desk of a hotel somewhere. And they would get the letter and ponder their answer for a few days and send us possibly a hotel brochure back and a yes, we have space, or no, we don't have space. And that would take three weeks. But we can't actually make a decision. It's six weeks has gone by since our initial query. But we can't make a decision on where we're going to stay at this point because we haven't necessarily heard from all of the hotels. So we're going to throw a couple of weeks of wait time in there to collect information from all the hotels. Now, finally, we've made a decision on where we want to stay. And so we send out another letter saying, hey, we're bringing our group to your hotel on this particular day. That's taken three more weeks. They get that. And we, of course, want to get a confirmation because a lot of time has gone by since our initial query. And now we want to have a confirmation that, yes, you got our reservation and, yes, you're accepting it. And that's another three weeks and one or two in between for general processing. So right now we're 15 weeks, 15 weeks to book a hotel. Technology has changed a whole lot. (laughs) So how many tours would you do in a year? Were you just going there the one time then? For the first, oh, I don't know, five or eight years, maybe 10 years, mom and dad were doing two tours, one in the fall and one in the spring every year. Oh, yeah. And they were three-week tours beginning and ending in Munich. And then in the mid-80s, we started to run a couple more tours in the middle of the summer. And once I got on board, we were running even more tours. We were running three to six tours a winter in New Zealand and running similar numbers in the summertime in Europe. Oh, wow. That many tours in New Zealand. That's, that's a fair amount. Yep. The time that I got really involved touring-wise was when we started to go to New Zealand regularly, and I would conduct the tours down there, and mom and dad would stay here in the office in the wintertime, and then in the summer, I would stay here while they went to Europe, and I would take care of the office duties here. So we had opposite seasons and opposite hemispheres. Huh. Interesting. So how how would it have been back then, even for maps, where can you 
now it's so easy, of course, with Google Maps and everything. But when I, Bonnie and I first started touring in Europe, we would get the maps and they're fairly detailed. They still didn't have all the raw roads on them, but they're pretty good. Uh, was it similar back then? Was it still same quality of maps? Because uh, that's the only, I guess, thing you would have for, for researching roads. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, there was no internet. There was no computerized mapping. Um, it was a paper map. And we were very well acquainted with the different map manufacturers in Europe. And the ones that we settled on were Kummerli and Fry and Freitag and Berndt. Those were the two maps that we routine, or two map companies that we routinely dealt with. For a while, we were handing out 12 maps on, on tour in different languages. <laughs> so the, the interesting thing about maps and the one thing that's missing with an awful lot of the electronic depictions of roads and things now is the topography. And, and good maps gave you such a great feeling of the topography of where you were riding through, as well as the actual road intersections and, and which way you needed to turn at the intersection. But back then, the navigation was from city to city. European roads are basically spoked out from the center of town. And so you're getting on the Augsburger Strasse from a little village in Munich and taking the Augsburger Strasse, which is literally the road to Augsburg or the Dachauer Strasse which is literally the road to Dachau. So the navigation brought you into the middle of a little village, and from there you tried to figure out where the next village was, and that was how you navigated. Your route sheet would be a list of towns, one after the other. I ride to the center of this town, and when I get there, I look for a sign for this town and turn down that road, and off I go. Okay, so we still have maps, of course, but not too many people using those, although many, many people on tour still take maps. I like bringing a few different maps on tour. It's nice to see sometimes where you are, get the bigger picture, but for your normal navigation, it's hard to be a GPS, isn't it? It is. Uh, the advantage of the GPS is really that it is an infinitely scalable map. Uh, the downside is that you really don't get the big picture. The concept of where you've been over the course of one or two or three or four days. The scale of a map is indicative of two things. One, how much of an area you're looking at on the map, and two, the detail of the roads that are there. So you may have a situation where the GPS is the spot on way for you to find those really neat little roads. But when you start to zoom out, you lose the perspective of the little roads and you don't get enough of a perspective of the big picture that I just rode across Bavaria. And I took this chunk of Austria yesterday and crossed it as well. And now I'm into this part of Italy. You, you don't get the big picture there without a map. And so there there's a lot of value to maps still from the standpoint of being able to look back and reminisce. Well, for sure. And just sometimes making that big plan, like you said, because you can see the big picture. I know some people are really kind of anti-GPS. I think that's, they just don't know how to use it properly. If you're just going to follow a GPS blindly, I get how people say, oh, it takes the adventure out of it and everything. I always tell a story about being stuck in Lisbon with a friend of mine. We're on motorcycles. It's 30 Celsius. And as we're making our second lap of Lisbon, trying to figure out how the heck to get out of there, because uh, Portugal road signs aren't that great. I turned and looked at Bonnie and said, some people's idea of adventure feels a lot like heat stroke to me. <laughs> 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 I would have 
paid a thousand bucks for a GPS at that point. Just let me get us the hell out of here already. Get out in the countryside a bit. So they have so many advantages. But even for adventure, you can look, hey, what's that neat thing over there? How do I get there? And you can bring the maps up. Like you said, that you have infinite amount of maps on your GPS. Not every single road is on there, but most are. And you can use it to navigate to that thing. If you're going to just follow it blindly. Yeah, yeah. You are taking adventure out of it in a lot of ways, but don't, don't do that. <laughs> Exactly. And if you're if you're actually letting the GPS make your calculations on the roads to take, then you're just depending on the electronics. And and that is different than actually looking at a map and laying out a route that you want to take based on what I see on the map, what I see for the topography. This is where I want to go. These are the towns that I want to go through and creating the GPS route and simply using the GPS route as your direction. But it, you know that that's actually your route. From the beginning it's not one that was created by the algorithm in the software and i think that that's important is if you're going to use a gps for any kind of recreational motorcycle riding that you actually get very intimate with the software behind it and the mapping program and create your own routes and simply follow them and there are some really good online sources uh, via michelin is fantastic for digital depictions of maps it's a, it's their website but they've got all of the via Michelin maps in uh, what you would see if you were looking at a paper map of whatever the same scale is. It's really a nice site and it's a great way to get the feel for the lay of the land and what's going on on a variety of different levels before you're actually mapping out your routes on the GPS software and then sending the route to the GPS. So, so like many other things, you get out of it what you put into it. So if you're gonna follow this GPS blindly and not kind of participate in the technology, then yeah, it can kind of suck the fun out of it in a lot of ways. <laughs> but if mm -hmm. you use it for and the, all, all the features, uh, yeah, it can add to it. You look at, I follow a few different riders, adventure riders going around the world and they all use GPS. They also use their smartphones. They use, there's a few different mapping programs. They use all the technology trying to figure out how to get from A to B. They've done the research. I want to go from here to here to there. How do I make this happen? Right. And that depends on the aim of your trip. Um, somebody that's trying to get around the globe in 80 days is going to take very different roads and, and run at a very different pace than somebody who wants to putter around and really see Austria or a corner of Italy or a section of France in great details. The technology is an asset only, as you said, if you're putting in the time in the beginning, so it's actually you creating the route or a good tour guide. <laughs> creating the route and giving it to you to follow. So, so we've talked about, certainly there's been tons of changes. Technology has changed in many ways and just booking hotels or GPSs, of course, motorcycles. What Do, do you think the, the core business has changed or is it, are you still doing tours or for the same way, you know, I, I don't know if you know why I'm asking you, is, is this still the, still the same type of spirit of why are we going there, why you're going there and taking these trips? That's an interesting question. From our perspective at Beaches Motorcycle Adventures, yeah, we are. Yeah, I think that we've taken a very different tack than the other companies have in that we're not trying to be the world's biggest tour company. We're not trying to run 47 tours over the course of the summer. We're simply trying to put together great adventures for groups of enthusiastic adventurers. And uh, that 
was what the tours were when mom and dad were running them. And uh, that hasn't changed. So yeah, you haven't tried to adopt the Mick adventure, the Mick tour, as we, I've heard some people refer to it. We've talked to other people from different tour companies and some of the guides have said that, that some, sometimes a lot of these things we do, they make it a little bit too easy and that people don't have to put any effort into it, which is good in a lot of ways. But uh, t- tomorrow you can go hang gliding or parasailing the next day a motorcycle tour the day after that you want to climb mount everest sure we will get a group of people will carry to the top of the mountain if you pay, pay us enough but your business uh, like a model really it's, it's still the same here we're going to give you these tools and I encourage you to kind of figure a bit of stuff out on your own and we'll be there to help you along the way i guess it is that of course there are people that simply don't want to think they don't want to challenge they don't want to deal with any of that and uh, they say beach where are you going tomorrow i'm going on this particular route to get to this particular hotel. Good, I'm going with you. What time are we leaving? (laughs) (laughs) And that is part of the tour business, of course, is that there are people that are in a situation where they simply are on vacation. They don't want to think. They don't want any of the problems or stresses of navigating, of dealing with their own day-to-day adventure. They simply want to ride a bike. Well, that we can offer. But to give folks a variety of different routes and then see the reactions as they come in at the end of the day when they have had their adventure the way they want it to be is really fascinating it, it that's that's the thing that is the big difference with us and the nice thing is that people weren't traveling all together during the day so everyone has a different tale a different story a different look at what happened even if they went down the same road the fact that they did it half an hour or 45 minutes apart from one another leads to different stories did you come across the herd of cows oh no no really Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we got stuck and we had to follow the cows down the road for half an hour. That sort of thing. It's funny. That's the first thing that came to mind when you said that. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see the herd of cows? Because depending on what season you're in, uh, often the farmers are bringing their their cattle or the sheep, whatever, their livestock uh, up to the mountains or down from the mountains. So <laughs> that's mm-hmm. quite common, isn't it? It's like, and if, how does it work in the, in the fall time? They put a headdress on the cows. It's supposed to indicate how the season went. There was a reasoning for the headdresses on some of the livestock. We're going back a zillion years or four centuries, whichever you prefer, <laughs> before easy communication, the herders that took the cows up the mountain would be up there all summer. And in fact, that still happens. There, there are still herders that stay up all summer on top of the mountains with the, with the cows. But back in the old days, there was no communication. There were no cell phones. So the people of the village had really no idea what was going on with their herd, which of course is their asset, their livelihood, their, their existence. And they didn't know what was going on up in the mountains until fall when the herders came down and brought the herd back into winter pasture and and to the barns. And so the tradition developed that if they had had a safe summer and didn't lose any stock or have any other problems up on the mountain during the summertime, they would bedeck the queen cow with garlands and flowers so that the people who were waiting in town for the herd to come in could see from a distance before they had any other communication that everything went well. And if there were was a loss, if uh, cows had fallen off the edge of the mountain or gotten caught in a landslide or something like that and they lost some stock, the lead cow would not be bedecked and they know that there was a problem somewhere. Like most of our traditions, it comes from 
a place there was a reason for it, it wasn't just for now i would imagine it's mostly just just for fun it's tradition that's what we've always done it comes from a place where you know the it, i wouldn't say necessity but there was definitely a reason for it so so you've been doing this more than a couple of years right uh I, I don't think we need to count up the decades did you did you actually have a real job at some point did you work at, at somewhere duncan fries or somewhere you wore a paper hat well i was working a parts counter at a kawasaki shop for a summer when business was very slow and i needed some additional income so i was the parts guy <laughs> a parts guy actually a parts guy there were there were four of us there oh yeah yeah, that was one summer. And other than that, nope. This is it. Is there anything else? Is there something you ever see uh, doing instead? Is there like, man, if I could work my way into whatever that'd be, is there something else you'd kind of rather be doing? Nothing. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. I was clued in enough with technology when the internet suddenly appeared. Um, I was aware that it was going to be something that was huge and looked real hard at that because I was involved with computers and electronics and building my own machines and a bit of a geek and then thought, nope, I actually prefer motorcycle touring and this little business that we've got right here because it is something that's very, very special. So I've stayed true to course and I'm not much more than just a motorcycle bum. <laughs> <laughs> Well, after this many years, you must have people over there, you're practically a family there. Oh, yeah. Yep. There are a number of hotels that we've been staying in for decades where we've seen the families grow up from kids to now the proprietors of the hotels. We've seen, seen in a lot of history, and they've seen a lot of history from us as well, as we've come through with so many people over the years who became very fond of particular places. And some of the folks that come with us again and again and again and again have their favorite hotels and people that they know within those hotels who also know them as uh, the American clients that come with beaches, but a specific individual who has been coming with beaches for 10 years. So where do you see this all headed or do you uh with uh, again technology and these electric motorcycles uh, there's going to be a, a ton of changes i guess in the in the near future i guess there's no crystal balls where what would you see do you see anything big or something that's going to change the industry much no no i really don't um it's not clear the young people are not coming into motorcycling with the numbers that are necessary to really keep the sport going as it does. As fewer and fewer people develop a passion for motorcycling, we become sort of the extreme minority on the roads and I'm not sure what's going to happen. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. That's a, And the electric, electric side of things, the electric machines are cool, but they need better range. When you consider that we're doing um, one to 200 miles a day and you don't want to have to have a break of a couple of hours in the middle of that necessarily yeah. that turns into a bit of a problem so the range is an issue on the electric machines and i think that that's really the big issue at this point because they certainly are developing enough power and reliability is not a big problem it's simply getting the range out of the out of the power system so so at some point you hook up with a lovely lady and she starts joining you on these tours too that must be that's a big step for somebody to take, right? You were born into the company and young, you slowly step into it. Whereas you meet somebody and say, okay, here's what we do. We live out of a suitcase for six months of the year. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, Gretchen came along on tour as a passenger on her father's motorcycle and 
somewhere along the line. She ended up on the back of my motorcycle. And then the tour came to an end and her father flew home, but she didn't. And then the next tour came to an end and she didn't fly home. <laughs> and and uh, then the summer came to an end and she flew home and before too long ended up on Grand Island. Yeah, she is a, a vagabond at heart as well. Now, well, she brings a lot to the company and a lot to the tours. So uh, it was a great addition. For sure. And so uh, any, uh, maybe not any, but most good companies, it's, it's always good to have a balance of male and female in that because they bring different perspectives to, to most things. So I, I, I know I toured before Gretchen was there and I've toured after it's it's great having her i think it is. a lot of the spouses really like it too <laughs> yep exactly female perspective on things is very different than america uh, male perspective and uh, to have both of them has been very very helpful in decisions that we've made on where to stay and what's important in hotels etc and and it works nicely it works nicely she is aware of the things that you and i find important as far as good roads and nice places to ride and puts as much weight and emphasis on those as she does on the quality of the hotels and the quality of the meal, uh, cleanliness, um, accoutrements in the hotel, et cetera, et cetera. But she also demands that I respect those as being important to her and the other passengers on tour where, you know, you and I could go to her and if the roads are good, we could probably sleep most anywhere uh, for a couple of nights anyway, whereas the passengers wouldn't be quite so enthused about the whole thing. So Gretchen comes along and makes sure that everything is being done right to keep the passengers happy as well. Yeah, so that's... Uh that's kind of how we got to where we are, Mike, with Gretchen on board. And now she's actually completed, I don't know, over 100 tours with me. That's a lot of tours for Gretchen. How many do you have under your belt these days? Over 200, 210, 215. Been doing it for a while. I figured at one point, calculating how many days I've spent in hotels, I've actually slept in hotels for a third of my life. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty significant. Right on. Well, this has been great, Robbie. There's so much history behind the company, and I really enjoyed listening to you. So uh, what do we have planned for our next podcast? I think next week uh, we'll get Dr. Jim Bogus to join us as a guest. I had an interesting conversation with Jim the other day, and he mentioned that uh, one of the things that's worth talking about in the podcast are the advantages of an organized tour versus traveling someplace on your own. And he's done both to Europe. And uh, I think he's got some interesting insights for us. And hey, if any of you that are listening have anything that you'd like to talk about, please toss it at us. We'd love to have you on as a guest. Yeah, and don't forget, just hit subscribe and a like. We'd, we'd really appreciate that. And uh, I guess until until next week then, talk to you then. All right, Mike. I, I, I knew one drink was going to cover you. <laughs>